Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. Turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 6. We're going to be there in a moment. Daniel, chapter 6. And guess what, everybody? Today, today, we begin the final week of experiencing God. Which doesn't mean we're done experiencing God. It just means we're done with the series, Experiencing God. And so today, we begin week 12. And what that also means is, this is our final memory verse, and I know how much you've just loved doing these, so we're going to start again today. Hebrews, our memory verse today is Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, and because this is our final week, let's really at least try to memorize it. How about that? How about we do that? So, actually, I do have it memorized, so, but, uh, (laughs) so, um, Here we go. Let's read it together. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25. Let's do it one more time. Let us consider how we might spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Let's just break that down for a second. Let us consider, in other words, This is something that we've got to think about. It's not something that just happens by accident. I don't just wake up one day and stumble into a life of encouraging others, although I suppose that might happen once in a while. But he's telling us, make this this specific, make this intentional in your life, how I might encourage others. See, I wake up this morning, God, how do you want to use me as encouragement to somebody else? You know, we come into church on a Sunday morning to gather together and celebrate Jesus. God, how do you want to use me as an encouragement to somebody else this morning? Let us consider how we might do that. And then there's that word spur. The word spur. I mean, when I think spurs, I don't think positive You know, a spur, that was this thing that cowboys had on the heels of their boots to make the horse go faster. It couldn't have been fun for the horse. (laughs) And yet he tells us, is that really what the Bible's telling us? To spur, like, are we supposed to be annoying? Is that the idea? Are we supposed to agitate? I wonder if maybe really the context of spurring is like a, a highly competitive athletic environment like let's let's think about like a a competitive athletic team or maybe in the military you have an elite team like a seal team for example and in those those teams they're very competitive and and they're constantly challenging one another to to be their absolute best they're pushing 
each other and themselves to the very limits that they can do so that they can maximize their potential. Maybe that's what spurring is all about. I wonder what church would look like if we began to develop that kind of atmosphere where we're challenging one another because we all agree that we have a goal here. See, we agree, look at godliness. You don't drift into godliness. You notice that? There's no, there's no neutral in the, in the Christian life. There really isn't. I mean, you're either in drive or you're in park or you're going in reverse, but you're not just floating. There's no neutral. And, and if we, when we recognize that, we're going to push and challenge each other to become everything that Jesus died for us to be. Like that's spurring one another on toward loving good deeds. And, 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 then, and then it says, and let us not give up meeting together. Because meeting together is part of how we spur one another on to loving good deeds. So we, we meet together. Why do we meet together? Because we need each other. Christianity is a team sport. We don't, you don't play it alone. We're, we're meant to play it together. You know, like right now, I'm motivated to lose 20 pounds because we have a, a family wedding. Our niece is getting married the end of May. And so, you know, I want to fit in my suit. And uh, so, you know, the only suit I own, might as well wear it well. <laughs> so I got to get ready for the wedding. And uh, you know what helps is my brother-in-law, Tim, he's also trying to lose 20 pounds because it's his daughter getting married, and he really needs to look good in his suit. So we're working together to lose weight. And so you know what? We text each other, hey, man, I'm down a pound, you know? We're challenging each other to lose 20 pounds. There's something about working together that just makes it a lot more successful. We're keeping one another motivated. That's why, we, that's why we meet together. This has a lot to do with my pursuit of Christ. Have you ever noticed that? that have you ever met a Christian or maybe read a, bi read a biography of a Christian who had something that you don't have? And you say, oh, God, I'd like to. I want that. I want to I learn how to pray like that. I want, I want to learn how to, how to, I want to learn the Bible like that. I want to learn how to witness like that. I want to, I want to learn how to believe like that, God. Like, have you ever met somebody that inspired you in that way? Like, that's part of the purpose of, of meeting together so that we can push each other towards that. And notice what our Bible verse says, that we're to meet together all the more as you see the day approaching, not not less. Would you say that with me? All the more. All. How, how often are we to start are we meeting? All the more, it says. All the more. As you see the day approaching. And when you realize that this, these words were written uh, 2,000 years ago, the first Christians, they were expecting Jesus to come back any day now. We're even closer to the day of his return now than they were then. And so, all the more, as you see the day approaching. Now, notice what the verse does not say. It doesn't define what meeting together is. You notice that? Meeting together is not a Sunday morning church service necessarily, although this is a form of meeting together, absolutely. But 
it doesn't define meeting together as a church gathering, does it? Can we meet together to encourage one another over a cup of coffee? That could happen. Could, could we be meeting together to encourage each other by helping each other do yard work or something like that? Could we be raking? Yeah, we could do that. Could we be meeting together and encouraging each other? You know, you got two moms, you get your kids to do a play date together and hanging out in the park. Could that be a, a source of encouragement? Absolutely. You see, so meeting together is not just maybe what we typically think of when we think about a church meeting, but the goal is still the same, that we're keeping one another's fires lit. We're encouraging each other, which kind of leads me to this thought. Like, do, do a little bit of math with me for a moment, okay? So, we meet here on Sunday mornings. That's like two hours. When you say, let's give it two hours on Sunday mornings, we're meeting together. And let's say you're part of a life group that meets some other time during this week. That's another two hours, let's say, give or take a few minutes. So, which by the way, our life groups are really, God's really doing something there. We have, you know, we have 18 different life groups right now. And just this last week, we're, um, we're going to be adding three more groups when we start our next season here at the beginning of June. Three more life groups, so there'll be 21 groups. There's more people that meet in groups than meet here on Sunday morning, which I think is pretty cool. So, uh, so anyway, all that said. So, but let's say you got your life group, and that's another two hours or so. So that's four hours of meeting together in a week. Now, if I do my math right, you can, che you can check my math. So 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that's 168 hours in a week, right? Do that right? You math whizzes? Okay, so that means if I got four hours already spoken for, that means there's 164 hours in the week where how am I going to meet together in that 164 hours? So that leads me to a couple of conclusions. If I, if I need to meet together all the more as I see the day approaching and I desperately need to be encouraged and to keep the fire lit, and I need you to do that, I've got to utilize that 164 hours carefully, shouldn't I? And that leads me to two thoughts. One is I, I need to step up my game at home because I spend an awful lot of time at home with my family so how can I develop and build a home where we encourage one another, where we, you know, spur one another on to love and good deeds? How can we build a home that does that? You know, Scripture's pretty clear. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is one passage, and there's a number of others, where your home is a very important part of spiritual development, and so how do you build a family and a home where the Word is taught, where Jesus is glorified, where we're encouraged and challenging one another to grow in our walk with the Lord? See, that's very important because we spend a lot of hours there in that 164 hours, don't we? The, the second conclusion that I come to is then I'm going to need to find other Christians where I work. 
because the other place that I spend a large chunk of my time is either at school or work. It's another big part of that, isn't it? So I, I need to find other Christians where I work so that we can encourage each other, meet together, spur one another on toward love and good deeds, don't we? I remember, I want to tell a story. I remember a, a number of years ago, I've already shared this story before, but it's one of my favorites and it's just worth repeating. But, you know, I've had a privilege, I've been privileged to be a pastor for 32 years, and I've had the honor of being a part of, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of people over the years come to know Jesus as their Savior, and it's such an honor for that. And every once in a while, somebody just stands out for whatever reason. Nancy Meehan stands out. This lady um, came, when she, when she came to faith in Jesus, this is going back now about 29, 30 years ago. When she came to faith in Jesus, she just blossomed, you know? Just one of those people. She just blossomed. And God did an amazing work in her life and just a dynamic Christian woman. Well, uh, she came to me one day and she said she was thinking about quitting her job. She was one of the administrators at the hospital. And um, she said, you know, I'm lonely at work. I don't have any Christian friends at work. And she literally was thinking about quitting her job because she didn't have Christian friends at work. And so I said, Nancy, why don't we pray and ask God to just give you a Christian friend? And so we did. And we started praying together. Nancy began to fast and pray one day a week. And during lunch on that day that she fasted and prayed, she would prayer walk the perimeter of the hospital grounds, praying for the hospital where she worked. And don't you know, after several months of that, she met a Christian friend who was a nurse at the hospital where she worked. And so she and this friend, they began, of course, they became prayer partners. And they're, you know, they're doing what Hebrews talks about. They're spurring one another on, encouraging each other, praying together for the hospital. Her friend would prayer walk with her. Now there's two of them prayer walking the hospital once a week. And it was great. God answered her prayer. Well, he did so much more. A uh, number of months later, our church had a woman uh, she, who had passed away. She died of breast cancer in her just mid-30s, a young lady by the name of Patsy. And it was very sad and very, you know, hit everybody very hard because here's a young, young woman. She left behind two young boys, that kind of thing. But Patsy was a, a woman, just a, another dynamic Christian woman with a very dynamic tes testimony and witness. She led kids' clubs in the town. Like, she was just super involved in everything in the town. And so when Patsy passed away, there were, it was one of those funerals where the, the church is packed, just packed out, standing room only. Everybody's there. When Patsy and I met for the last time before she passed away, she, we met to plan her service. And at that meeting, she told me, I never forget it, she, she sat up in her bed, and as sick as she was, sat up in her bed, she pointed her finger at me, and she said, you need to seal the deal. You need to do an altar call at my funeral. 
And, and that's how she's with a finger. You seal the deal. That's how she worded it. In honor of Patsy, I did. The time came. The place is packed. Her casket is down front. I came and stood next to the casket. I shared the gospel, very simple, like I just did this morning before we prayed. And I invited people to come to the altar for prayer to receive Jesus as their Savior. Four people came and stood in front of Patsy's, Patsy's casket, giving their lives to Jesus, publicly declaring their faith in Christ. One of them was the hospital CEO. The other one was in charge of the buildings and grounds at the hospital. And two others were part of the administrative staff. God started a whole, like, revival going on in the hospital, all told, by the time, the, by the time it was done, I mean, it, you know, now you're going out a couple of years, over the course of several years, there were over 20 people in that hospital that came to faith in Jesus Christ. And I believe it all started because one Christian woman was lonely. She's looking for Christian fellowship at work. And God answered her prayer. God answered her prayer, and then some. I guess I'm saying is, you know, friends, God has put you where he's put you on purpose. And, and you know, if you're going to meet together and find encouragement during the day, then it, it, it means you're probably going to need to find Christian friends at work, and it probably means those Christian friends are not going to be from New River Church. And that's okay. That's a beautiful thing. And you're going to find each the thing that will bind you is Jesus, not where you worship on Sunday morning. And, and you're going to have fellowship at work. You're going to pray together and support each other, spur one another on towards love and good deeds. See? And, and what you're not going to do is you're not going to invite them to our church. <laughs> and they won't invite you to theirs because that's not the goal. But you see how God might use that to bring unity in the church? Like, don't we pray for unity in the church? And, you know, we have these united prayer nights and things like that where we meet with the other churches in the area, which is super cool. But, but can you see how God might want to bring unity to the church as you have fellowship with your Christian friends at work? See? Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, and all the more. Our scripture verse says, as you see the day approaching, Jesus told us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Seek first the kingdom. Now, seeking first doesn't mean just when you're at church. Seek first the kingdom at home. Seek first the kingdom at work. Seek first the kingdom at school. The question there is, how? That's our challenge. What does it look like? You know, kids, you can't exactly flunk your math test and then say, well, I was seeking first the kingdom and just ran out of time. I, you know, that doesn't, that's not going to float. And the same thing is true at work. Your boss is not going to buy that line for why you didn't do your work. So how do I, I seek first the kingdom at work? See, how do I do that for this there's no better example than Daniel in the Bible. I love Daniel because Daniel, is, he's not a pastor, not a preacher. He's, he's listed as one of the prophets, but he's not a priest. 
He's a, a, a government employee in the Babylonian Empire. And I love Daniel because the Babylonian Empire was not a nice place. I mean, you understand, Daniel worked for the Babylonians during, long before OSHA ever existed. Like, they really didn't care that much about, you know, workplace safety and all that kind of stuff. That was not part of their concern. And Daniel worked for this government. And, and these guys were as pagan as pagan could get. And yet Daniel is maintained as a man of integrity in the Bible. Do you know that of all the people in the Bible, you know, one of the things we love about Bible characters is that they're, so, that they're flawed. Every one of them, Abraham, Moses, David, all these guys that we love have flaws, and the Bible's pretty open about their flaws. Do you know the, that Daniel is the only character in the Bible, aside from Jesus, but that's not fair, we won't, but Daniel's the only character in the Bible where none of his flaws are mentioned. He, he's maintained as a guy that is just top shelf, integrity, rock solid all the way through. And yet Daniel is living as a prisoner of war, an exile, as a servant in the city of Babylon, the center of the Babylonian Empire, working for this wicked king, and this is Daniel. How did he do it? Well, let's take a look. Daniel chapter 6, Daniel chapter 6 is the famous story, probably it's one of the most famous stories in the whole Bible, Daniel and the lion's den. All right, you all know the story, but here's the backstory. Do you realize Daniel got thrown in the lion's den because he was such a good employee? Exactly why. Daniel, we're, we're about to read. The king wanted to promote Daniel, and his co-workers didn't like that. And so they tried to basically get rid of Daniel. And the reason why the king wanted to promote Daniel was because his work was so superior. And I tend to think... The Bible doesn't make it clear, but Daniel was so superior that it made his co-workers maybe not look so good. And so, see what I mean? You see, you know how that works. So these guys are gunning for Daniel because he's so impeccable. He's so unreachable. And that's what leads to the lion's den scene. But here's the backstory: Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It says, it pleased Darius, now he's the king, to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. So you see where Daniel sits on the food chain? Here's the king. Here's three guys, one of whom is Daniel, and then here are 120 others who are kind of governors, I suppose. They're overseeing different provinces in the Babylonian Empire, and Daniel is one of three guys whose job is to oversee these 120 guys. Now, verse 3, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Ooh, rumor. 
Daniel's going to get promoted. How do his co-workers respond to this? Verse 4. At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Huh. Isn't that something? So they're trying to get dirt on Daniel, and they can't find any. Verse 5, finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. That's the only way we're going to get this guy. Verse 6, so these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king, and they said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Majesty, you are wonderful. Oh, you are the best majesty, the most bestest king ever. Let us all just pray to you for 30 days, king. You are. That's what they're doing. And how does the king feel about this? Well, he likes this idea. Who wouldn't? Verse 8, now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing, passes the law. You're not praying to anybody except to me, the king, for the next 30 days. Verse 10, now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Remember, that's where he was from. That's his home city, and that's where the temple of God, well, at this point it was destroyed, but that's where it was. And so Daniel is praying facing Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and they spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, he pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. But as the story goes, he couldn't do it. Daniel had to be thrown into the lion's den. And spoiler alert, how did it, how did it turn out? Okay, give me, give me the spoiler alert, everybody. How did it turn out for Daniel? 
He made it. He made it. Okay. Whew. There we go. You can read the rest of the chapter. But what got him there was his commitment to God, his high work ethic, and the fact that everybody else was trying to bring him down. Look at this, and let me just walk through this. Look at verse 1. It says, it pleased Darius to do this. That says, you, it says a lot about Daniel. Do you understand that if you, if you go to the end of chapter 5, you'll notice that Darius is a Persian king. You say, well, Persia, I thought it was Babylon that took over the Jews. Right, but Persia took over Babylon, as empires do. See, the Babylonian Empire goes and takes over the Jews. They destroy Jerusalem, take Daniel to be in Babylon. But then years later, the Persian Empire rises, and guess what they do to Babylon? They destroy Babylon, and now Persia's in charge. Four times, Daniel survived four kingdom turnovers through the course of his life. That says volumes about Daniel as a person. Because this is a day, listen, this is not just like a new administration comes into town and they fire everybody. No, no, no. These are ancient times. A new administration comes into town and they kill everybody from the previous administration. So the fact that Daniel survived four turnovers speaks very highly of his integrity. What was it about Daniel that just stood out so much that here's Darius, he's the new emperor, the new king in town, and Darius, he no doubt would have killed a bunch of Daniel's co-workers because that's what they did. But what was it that Darius saw in Daniel that said, you know, I, I, no, we're not going to off this guy. This guy's too valuable to me. And sure enough, in time, Daniel proves his value, doesn't he? And Darius is pleased with Daniel, and he sees this. It's amazing. And then Daniel, then the king sets up these 120 governors, and Daniel is one of the guys in charge of these guys. So I suppose, do the math, maybe he had 40 under him, right? If there's three and 120 so Daniel had maybe 40 guys under him who reported to him. And you notice in verse 2 that their job was to make sure the king did not suffer any loss. What do you suppose would happen if the king suffered loss? Heads rolled, didn't they? Sure, absolutely. So you think Daniel's got a high-pressure job? Oh, I'd say he's living under some pressure. He's got a little bit... <laughs> Um, and if Daniel is so impeccable in his character and all these other guys that were working with him clearly were not, you got to think that Daniel has got a lot of work on his hands to make sure the king does not suffer loss, to make sure that he distinguishes himself as a trustworthy person. I guess you'd call Daniel in a corporate structure, he might be like a a VP of operations. I don't know what you'd give, what title, what modern title we would give Daniel. But, but you look at him in verse 3, it says he distinguished himself above all the others, so much so the king is going to put him in charge. So the king's just like, how about we just, you know, when you got an ace, man, you play the ace. And Daniel was the ace. And the king saw that and he was going to play it. Verse 4 tells us Daniel so distinguished himself that he put a target on his back. That is, other satraps and leaders, they wanted to ruin him. Isn't this often the case? 
that rather than admire successful people and rather than learn from them, we tend to try to destroy them. I guess we do that because it makes us feel like we're let off the hook. I don't have to be accountable for my lousy actions if I can tear you down. So here's Daniel. Only notice they can't find any corruption in Daniel. Isn't that amazing? Wouldn't that be a breath of fresh air? A government employee with no corruption. What a concept. Wow, okay. So here's Daniel, right? He's like, he's got no corruption. He says he's neither corrupt nor is he negligent. Those two words are used on purpose. He's not corrupt. That speaks to his character. He's not negligent. That speaks to his work ethic. He's getting the job done, and he's getting it done very well. So here's Daniel, neither negligent nor corrupt. Boy, when I think about this, I was thinking about this this week. I was like, this is really what we're looking for, isn't it? In, in those who lead us. You know, we're looking for those that are neither negligent nor corrupt. We're looking for those who have a high character, they have integrity, but at the same time, they're skillful. They know what they're doing. They can get it done. Like when you find somebody with these two qualities, boy, you just, I mean, it's pretty easy to promote people like that because they're, I mean, we, we want that in people who lead us. Now think about what it is that we know from, about Daniel from these verses. Just, just put the list together. What do we catch about this guy, Daniel? He's intelligent. We know that. He's capable. He has integrity. He's trustworthy. He's, uh, he's a leader. He's effective at what he does. These are all things you could say about Daniel. He's a standout guy at work. And verse 5 tells us the only thing they could find against him was prayer. Isn't that crazy? If we're going to get this guy, let's, let's pass a rule that says you can't pray because we all know he'll break that one. <laughs> so, and Daniel broke it, sure enough, as predicted, and then they were able to get him. Isn't that something? Basically what they were doing was they were setting Daniel up for treason because you notice the rule, the law was no one can pray to anyone except you, king. And so by praying to anyone other than the king, by praying to God, Daniel was actually committing treason against the king. But I find it fascinating. I didn't read it, but if you go down chapter 6 and you read after Daniel gets rescued out of the lion's den and everything is happy again, uh, the, the king goes to Daniel and Daniel says this to the king, um, let's see, where am I at? About verse 20, the king says, Daniel, has your God whom you serve been able to rescue you from the lions? Verse 21, Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found, look at this, I was found innocent in God's sight, Amen. nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. I think that's interesting. Daniel knowingly broke the king's law, and yet he did not do anything wrong against the king. And God saw him as innocent. You see, I think there's something valuable there for us to learn as the people of God. We have a job to do. 
We represent the kingdom here. And we represent the kingdom first. We represent the kingdom before we represent the United States of America, before we represent the state of Connecticut. We represent the kingdom. And in that role, we have a job to do. And one of our jobs is to pray, is to intercede, is, is, to, is to represent the kingdom before society. And so even, you know, in this instance, the issue was prayer. Daniel's like, by praying to God, I'm breaking the rule, but I'm still honoring the king. Isn't that fascinating? Because, my, because what's best for the king in this moment is for me to actually not follow that law. Because if I follow that law and I'm not praying, I'm not doing the job that God's called me to do, to represent the kingdom here, to bless the king. So let me just bless, the, I'll just break that law in order to continue blessing the king. I just, just throw that in your hat and think through it, right? We've been given a job to do. We represent the kingdom. And so their plan works. They catch Daniel praying, uh, you know, the audacity of it, the horror. And so they narc him out to the king, and he gets chucked in the lion's and, uh, and there we have the, the story. We know how it ends. They knew that Daniel would pray three times a day. They knew that he did that. Daniel did not separate his work life from his spiritual life. His work influenced, his work was influenced by his relationship with God. You notice that all of his coworkers knew about his daily habit of prayer. I wonder how they knew that. How do they know Daniel's a man of prayer? So he's a man of prayer and he's a man who gets stuff done. I mean, he's, wow. So this is what it means, my friends, to seek first the kingdom at work. I'm getting my job done. I'm doing it with excellence, but I'm doing it as a representative of the kingdom of God first. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, it says this, whatever you do, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not men. Who is your boss? God. And because God is my boss, my human boss is going to be the happiest person on the planet. Because God is ultimately my boss. See, whatever I do, I work at it with all my heart as working for the Lord, not for men. What do you do? You a nurse? You a car salesman? You a CPA? Stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad, teacher, engineer, graphic design? Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. It's like this heat pack. We've got a few of these. You know, these just sit around in the um, in our... our uh, our little uh, cabinet there, what's the word I'm looking for? First aid kit. There we go. Thank you. So in the first aid kit, and, and you know, it just stays, and there's nothing, it's a heat pack, but right now it's not hot because it has two liquids in it, but the liquids are kept separate. And so when you, when you pop this one liquid, ooh, instant heat. Oh, that feels good. That feels good. Here you go, Janet. Let me, let me warm you up. There you go. Okay. There you are, sweetie. 
So Janet, you can feel nice and warm. Warm your hands up there. She's got her winter coat on still. We're, we'll, we'll, I know. It's, yeah, we'll keep you toasty there with that heat pack. So, right? So here's, you got, you see this, you've got, you've got two elements in that pack, and they, as long as they stay separate, they don't affect one another. But mix them, and you've got heat. This is your life. Keep God in a separate pouch somewhere in your heart, and your life will be cold and predictable. You go to work, you go home, you go to church on Sunday, repeat. Work, home, church on Sunday, repeat. Daniel did not do that. Hey, if you guys can't behave, I'm going to take that back. You're just, I don't know what you're doing, you guys. <laughs> like a couple of kids with toys. He's harless. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right? Daniel worked for God at <laughs> Daniel worked for God at where it does. It feels good. Let me give you another one. Here. I can pop this one. You want this one, Janet? Let's cold if it's cold, I don't want it. Well, no, we pop it. It's cold now because it's not because they're separate. But see, here's the Here's the illustration. Here's what happens when you let God out of the pouch. <laughs> Boom. Now it's hot. Here, Rob, there you go. I'll give it to you. Now you both have a heat pouch. Good for you. That's it. I'm out. So here's the deal. Daniel worked for God at work. You see that? And as a result, as a result of Daniel bringing God to work, kings were impacted. Kingdoms were changed. Kingdoms were changed. You know, you read the story, it, it appears Nebuchadnezzar became a believer. King Darius became a believer as a result of this. You know, the, the, the king after King Darius, King Cyrus, Daniel worked for Cyrus too. Cyrus is the one that let the Jews go free. He ended the exile. You think maybe Daniel might have had something to do with that? The Bible doesn't tell us. But I got to think, you've got Daniel at this high level in government. He's serving the king, and he's serving the king well. You don't think Daniel says, hey, maybe it's time to let the Jews go back to Jerusalem. The Bible doesn't tell us that, but Cyrus is the one that did it. It's certainly not unreasonable to think. My point is this. I just wonder, my friends, how many policies of the company where you work have been shaped by your presence in the office? I wonder how your company's budget is affected by your presence in the office. I wonder how the atmosphere and the work environment of your company is affected by your presence there. Because you carry the presence of God, and you bring Him to work, and there you are. You're the heat pack. The heat is on. God's not separated. We're mixed in. See? And now you represent him in that office. You represent him at work. Um, one of our experiencing God groups right now is actually meeting at a local police department. And uh, part of the reason for that, the man behind that, is my friend Bill. Bill's a police officer, loves Jesus. Bill's a cop's cop, doing it for a long time. In fact, he's one of the top producers in the police department. He, the terms of tickets, DUIs, all that sort of thing. The stuff that none of us like. He's a top producer of those things. 
does his job very well, right? But everybody knows that Bill loves Jesus. They get into the cruiser after Bill's had a shift, and the radio's on Caleb. And they all joke, they kid, they, you know, because you, you got to understand police, and I, I mean, and fire. We, there's a considerable amount of jabs that go on, it's just friendly. And so they're jabbing him all the time about that, but, you know, it doesn't matter. They respect him. He's not preachy, he's not pushy, not at all. Not weird about it. He just loves Jesus. It's just who he is. It's just who he is. And people accept him for that. See, part of the reason, I think, why some Christians have problems at work is because your reputation is bad. If your walk doesn't match your talk, see, your, your friends have high, high hypocrite meters. They pick up on that. They pick up on that really fast, like the sensors go right off. And so you get all preachy about something, and they're like, shut up. They don't want to hear it. But when you start merging the two together, your love for God and your work, you get that heat pack mixed in there, friends, that's, that's where the money is, right there, so to speak. One of the guys that I've uh, long admired, I mean, some of you do this so, so well. But friends, we've got, you know, man, I could go off and list. I mean, Glenn, you're a witness at work, you know? Tom Walker, man, so, I mean, so, all you guys, it's just amazing. This, I'm kind of preaching to the choir with a lot of you. But here we are, it's week 12, it's in experiencing God. I guess my point is this. We seek first the kingdom in the way that we manage our books, the way that we pay our bills, the way that we serve in the community, the way that we treat employees and coworkers. We work as though working for the Lord because ultimately he's my boss. And so I'm working to please him as I work. So there's three things to close. Let me just quick three wrap-up points, and that's this. First of all, your reputation matters. Um, work hard, but work clean. Very important. Work hard, but work clean. If your mouth is just as foul as everyone else's, you're going to have a hard time making a difference. Avoid the office politics. Don't get caught in all that garbage. And you know it can happen. Don't, don't get in it. Don't, you know, all the union arguments and the this and the that and the complaining and the that, the that. You know how it goes. Stay above it. Don't, don't enter into it. Stay above it. Your reputation matters. Remember, you're there to represent the kingdom. Period. Second, prayer works. You heard the story of Nancy. Remember my friend there. Pray for your company. Pray for their success. There's a concept. Pray that your company is successful. Because if your company succeeds, you succeed. Pray for their success. Pray for your coworkers. Pray, pray for the koinonia at work. You know, like Keith talked about last Sunday. Keith did such a good job last week on that koinonia, on fellowship. You know, pray for koinonia at, at work. I, I want Christian friends at work, Lord. Would you start praying that if you don't have any? If that's not been your experience to date, start praying for it. I believe that God answers that prayer. And then third, be a blessing to your boss. 
Remember, um, Daniel's boss was so impressed, he wanted to put him in charge. Remember? Um, now, I'm not promising that this is going to be your experience, so let's, let's qualify that. But wouldn't it be awesome if your boss knew that they had nobody else like you in the company? And uh, like Daniel, you've maintained your integrity. You don't lie. You don't, you don't cheat. You don't do anything unethical for your boss. That's not at all what I'm suggesting. But you always treat them with respect. You let them know how they can count on you. Remember who your real boss is, after all, which means that your human boss is going to be one of the luckiest managers around because you're working for them. So these three things, just put them in your hat. Your reputation matters. Begin to pray for your workplace. Bless your boss. Be a blessing for them. Look for Christian friends because we need encouragement. We need to meet together. We need that because you spend an awful lot of time at work and at home. So we need that support around us all week long. Amen. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.